Awesome. Thank you, choir. So tomorrow, or today as we, uh, tomorrow, I don't know what I'm preaching on tomorrow, but today we're going to continue in this series. We started about a month or so ago uh, called Jesus Come and See. And uh, it, it's somewhat of a biography that I've really enjoyed going through this series. It sounds odd to say that uh, you don't hear a lot of sermons on the life and ministry of Jesus. You do. They're just kind of scattered. But what we're doing in this series is trying to kind of pull them together and, and build one block on top of the other. And uh, that, that's our goal for this series, and today we're going to add to that in, I believe, the fifth message in this series. So before I do that, I want to just kind of start off with a little bit of a story. Many of you are familiar with um, Jeremy Young, our children's pastor. So Jeremy's been here for quite a while now. He's been here for a few years. And, uh, and if you know Jeremy enough, you know that if there was a spiritual gift for giving someone else a hard time, Jeremy has it, and that person would be me that he gives the hard time to. And so he's really, really good at it. He's very creative at being able to give me a hard time. He does it publicly. He does it privately. And uh, he's just very gifted at, um, I guess, kind of being like a thorn in the flesh in a way, and uh, that's sort of what he does. But in, in, in his defense, I think maybe there's a backstory to it that I want to share that, that to some degree explains why he's just so mean to me. And so a few years ago when he first came, uh, he was not even here, but just for a few months, we did an event that was an Easter egg hunt on the islands. And I forget the year he came. I think it was like around 2016, 2015, somewhere in there. And um, so we did an event here that was an Easter egg hunt here on church property. We'd never really done one before. It was his idea and it was a great idea and it went great. And uh, had a lot of people that came, and there's like 600 people that came, a lot of kids, and it just went off so well. Well, before that event happened, when we were planning it all, Jeremy, he came to me and he said, hey, listen, there's a couple in our church that they have a, a bunny, they have a rabbit they'd like to bring, is that okay? And so my first question, I was raised by a lawyer, my first question was, well, does it bite? And, uh, and so he said, well, I don't think so, but I'll just go and ask him. So he went and asked him, hey, Brooks wants to know, does the rabbit bite? And they're like, no, it's perfectly fine, it's not going to bite anybody. And so we had the event, the rabbit was there, it was a big hit, everything went great, no one got bit, which was a good thing. And, uh, and I guess it was maybe a few days later, uh, the couple contacted me and they said, you know, we would like to do a little something to get Jeremy. See, they had already figured out what he's like. And, uh, and they said, we'd like, to, we'd like to pull a fast one. And so what we did was, I drafted this legal letter that sounded incredibly legal coming from an attorney that didn't exist. And I delivered, had it delivered to Jeremy that basically said, on such and such a date, which was the same date as the event, uh, we've received notice that uh, a child was bitten by a rabbit on the property of First Baptist Church of the Islands on the corner of Johnny Mercer Boulevard and, and uh, Penwiler Road. And, and, uh, and so it had a phone number for him to contact immediately, like super immediately. Didn't use that word. It wouldn't sound very professional. And so he comes to my office with that letter. He is, he is visibly shaken. It was awesome. It was so good. <laughs> and so it's like, man, I don't know. I mean, I guess, I, you know, we tried to cover this, and, and this is what I was talking about, and yeah, I guess you need to call that number. And he called the number, and of course, the number was the other couple. It was the person who had, who had uh, come up with the idea. And uh, it was just great. It was super. It was one of the best missions I've ever been a part of, uh, was that particular mission. And I think maybe that plays into why he treats me so horribly. Now, all these years later, uh, part of it, I guess, is my own fault. Well, when you think about it, uh, when you think about mission, there's a simple principle that comes into place. And, and it's a principle we're going to kind of trace through this message today because it's going to apply to what we're going to be looking at in Scripture. And the principle is this, that every mission starts with the end goal. Every mission starts with the end in mind. 
And, and that was a mission in every sense of the, uh, of the term, right? There was a mission to, to get Jeremy and, 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 and wanting to pull a fast one on him. That was the end goal. And everything that was done leading up to that just had, was done with the end in sight. And that's the way missions work, right? When Not missions like taking mission trips. I'm talking about mission in general. When a person is on a mission or if there is a mission that exists, it is always shaped first and foremost by the end goal that's in sight. That's always where you start is what the objective is. When you think about some of the most famous missions in our nation's history, for example, Apollo 11 being one of the most famous when uh, man landed on the moon. Apollo 11, July 16th, 1969. Apollo 11 was launched into orbit uh, with a very specific objective, with a specific purpose. Uh, there were three men on board. Michael Collins uh, was one of those. Buzz Aldrin was another. Of course, Neil Armstrong on there as well. And when they launched off into space, July 16th of 1969, and especially when they landed four days later, July 20th and uh, of 1969, and Neil Armstrong took that famous first step with that famous statement, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, with half a billion people around the globe watching at 10.56 p.m. on that night, everything changed, right? In fact, how many of you remember where you were when you witnessed that event? I'm just curious, right? Hands that are up, and those of you that weren't there to see it, so to speak, you're fully aware of it. We still teach it uh, in history today, and we still recognize it just about every single year. I mean, it was one of those moments, not just for us nationally, but globally as well. And, and the whole reason that it happened was because there was a mission that was put in place by President Kennedy eight years prior of his desire to put a, uh, uh, a group of people, uh, a crew, to send them to the moon to where they would land and return safely back to earth again. And everything that was done over that eight-year period, culminating with uh, Neil Armstrong's step onto the moon, all of that that culminated was, was, was planned with all of that in sight, right? All the mission that took place was with the end goal in sight. You go back 150 years before that, to a couple of men named Lewis and Clark. Uh, and, and you look at what they accomplished. Our nation had just purchased uh, what's known as the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, May 14th, 1804, Lewis and Clark headed out from St. Louis area with a crew of 41 people, and they were headed west. Where they lived there in St. Louis and, and, and everything in that region was very well known in our country. Our nation had already been in existence for a good uh, 30 years or so, but the West was uncharted. The West was territory that had never really uh, uh, been um, uh, explored or not much was known about it. And so they launched out West with this crew of 41 people and they headed towards the Pacific where they would ultimately arrive. But everything that happened in that two-year excursion, along with what was known as the core of discovery, only one person was lost. Everything that they experienced, the ups, the downs, the trials, all of the data that was gathered, everything that was learned culminated because of the mission that was started in the heart of Thomas Jefferson, the president, where he desired to send a crew west to find a northwest passage, a water passage that would link then the, the then-known U.S. with the Pacific Ocean for the purpose of commerce. And even though that didn't exist necessarily, that whole mission was accomplished with the end goal in sight. A president said, this is what I want to discover, and the whole entire group was formulated, and that two-year excursion was accomplished with the end goal in sight. That's the way mission works. Mission always works with the end in sight. 
In this series, what we've been looking at specifically is the person of Jesus. And this, the, the, this title of this series has been Come and See, and it's been a call for those who follow Jesus to, to come and see at a deeper level of who he is and what he was all about when he walked this earth and the implications of that for us now 2,000 years later. But it's also an invitation for those who don't know Jesus. Right? Maybe you've been hearing stories about it. Maybe you've watched some documentary on TV or you read something that was given to you around Easter time, some Time Magazine article, or maybe some talks around the water cooler at work. You've got this sort of an idea of who Jesus is, but you've never really researched for yourself. Well, that's what this series has been all about. And what we've done is we're taking the Bible, which is the only trustworthy source material we have, uh, movies and books that are written, some of those may be helpful, many of those are not, right? We've taken the only source material, that being the Bible, and, and we've begun uh, to kind of piece together this this somewhat of a summary of the life and ministry of Jesus, a biography. And, and it's not to make the Gospels better. The Gospels have already done this. We're just trying to collate them, right, and pull them together in a way that is just kind of in a nutshell. And so we started a few weeks ago looking at the eternal quality of God and, and uh, or of Jesus and how he has always existed. There was never a time when Jesus was not. It, as, as God, fully God, he has existed always. Uh, before Genesis 1-1, when God created the heavens and the earth, Jesus existed because he's God. This past Wednesday night, Jeremy was out of town, and um, he asked me to fill in and to, to teach with the, uh, the kids in Olympians, kindergarten through fifth grade. And, uh, and so I was up there, and the, the topic, I'm pretty sure that was kind of like next on the agenda, was the eternal quality of Jesus. And so I asked all the kids um, you know, to yell out their birthday, everybody at one time, and it was organized chaos. They all yell out my birthday. And so I asked them the question, well, when is God's birthday? Of course, the, what I was getting at, the end goal that I had in mind, was that God doesn't have a birthday because he's always existed. But when I said, what's God's birthday? Half the kids in the room said, you know what they said, Christmas. It's like, well, and then it got really deep really quickly, right? Trying to explain all of that, which I, I didn't do a very good job of. And I just kind of moved on a little bit. And let's save that for Jeremy. Let him unpack all that. He'll clean up the mess that I just created. And, but the idea is, is that Jesus is God. He is eternal. But there was a moment in time that we have captured in Scripture where he did make his entrance into this world. And it wasn't his beginning. It wasn't his start. He's always existed. But it was his beginning on this earth in life as we know it. Right? He was born in Bethlehem to marry a virgin, placed in a manger, and the rest of the New Testament then chronicles much of his life and his ministry and what happened as a result of it. And so we unpacked all, unpacked all of that a couple of weeks ago. And the last Sunday, we looked at the childhood of Jesus. And granted, there's not a lot in Scripture about his childhood, but we looked at what it was like, that he was, would have been raised like any other Jewish boy. He would have known the Scriptures. He would have known Hebrew worship. He would have been familiar with all of the festivals and all of the sacrifice system and uh, the, the priestly structure. He would have known all of that. And so what we want to do today then is to take a look specifically not just at his, uh, at his birth or at his childhood, but what I want to focus on today is his mission. What was his mission all about? What exactly was his mission? And does the scripture even help us to understand that clearly and in a nutshell? If you were to ask a group of people, if you were to go downtown and say, hey, have you ever heard of Jesus? Yes. Uh, what do you think his mission was all about? You're, you're going to hear a variety of responses. Some people are going to say, oh, well, Jesus, when he walked this earth, he was, he was all about helping people. And, and so some would say, I, I think his mission was just about helping people who were in need. And granted, he helped a lot of people. He, he helped countless people, probably more than 
any other single person, it seems, in, uh, in so many specific, tangible ways. He would help people who had physical issues. He would help people who had relational issues. He helped people. That's what he was all about. But was his mission, in a nutshell, boiled down, was it all about just simply helping people? Some would say, well, it was about doing miracles. Well, he did a lot of miracles. Right? He performed countless miracles, many of which we have recorded right here in the pages of Scripture. And, and uh, you know, walking on water and turning water into wine and, and a lot of other miracles as well. But was his mission really about just doing a bunch of miracles? Some would say, well, his mission was about attracting a crowd. Well, he attracted a lot of crowds. I mean, there are tons of people that follow Jesus and a lot who rejected him as well. But yes, he drew crowds. I mean, enormous crowds of people, uh, at least 5,000 at one point because we know that he performed a miracle and fed them, probably even more than 5,000 because that was just the men that were counted. The women and children were not. So even more than that, he fed. So large crowds. But was his mission really about attracting crowds. Was his mission, maybe some would say, well, it's about starting a new movement. Well, it was a new movement. I mean, you had Judaism. You had other world religions that were in place at the time. Some may say, well, he came to start a movement, and he did. But was that really, was that really his mission? What exactly was his mission? Well, as we've done in the series, let's just let Scripture help us to understand exactly what his mission was. And so I'm going to invite you to just come and see as we move through different passages of Scripture and let's let his word speak for itself to gain a picture of what his ultimate mission was because remember, the end goal always ultimately fuels the mission. And so what was the end in sight that motivated the mission that Jesus was all about for his life and ministry on this earth. Remembering when I speak about Jesus as was, it doesn't mean he no longer exists because he does. We're just looking at that season of life on this earth. And so let's see what the scriptures say. Let's start by going to the Old Testament before Jesus was born in the city of Bethlehem. And I want you to turn with me over to Isaiah chapter 61. Now in Isaiah chapter 61, while you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of backstory. In Isaiah chapter 61, there's the prophet Isaiah, uh, for whom the, the book is named, who is prophesying specifically about the Messiah to come. And in Isaiah 61, he's prophesying about the Messiah who was not yet on scene, right? He was going to be coming, uh, later we would know, 750 years, give or take, later. And so Isaiah, as a prophet, is prophesying, this is what the Messiah is going to look like. Here are some markers that when the Messiah shows up, you'll be able to identify him because he's not going to have a sign on. He's not going to have a name tag that says Messiah, right? But this is a way that you can identify him. So what does Isaiah say about the coming Messiah? Isaiah 61, verse 1, and a little bit of verse 2. He says, speaking of the Messiah, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So whenever he's speaking of the Messiah specifically, there's this list. And he seems to say, this is how you're going to recognize the Messiah. Again, 750 years before the Messiah Jesus would arrive, all the Israelites would have understood the Messiah would be God, and he would come to do just that. He would give sight to the blind. He would lift up the downtrodden. He would rescue those who were in bondage. He would set the captives free, and he would proclaim the message of the gospel. Hundreds of years would pass, 
and the people of Israel were waiting for that Messiah. Fast forward 750 years later. Let's look over in Luke chapter 4. Jesus is on the scene now. It's now the early stages of his ministry. He is probably 30 years old. And, and, and as his ministry is beginning, he's already been baptized. He has uh, already gone through the temptation from the enemy and, and come out sinless. And now he makes his way into officially, in many ways, begin his public ministry. Look at what it says here in Luke chapter 4, verse 14. So it says, And Jesus returned to Galilee. This is the northern region, north of Jerusalem. He returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. Here's the picture. Jesus is where? He's in Nazareth. What did we learn last Sunday? Nazareth was the hometown. It was home base. Whenever Mary and Joseph, while Jesus was just still a child, a little one, maybe even an infant still to some degree, upwards of close to two years old, they left Egypt. Remember, they had fled there, and they came back to the region of Galilee, and Nazareth became their home. And now Jesus, around the age of 30, is in that same city. It's his hometown, it's home base. Verse 16 says that he entered the synagogue, very possibly the same synagogue that he had gone to in that city as a boy with Mary and Joseph. And he enters the synagogue, and it says that on the Sabbath he stood up to read. Verse 17, and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book, and he found the place where it was written. He would have easily known how to navigate Isaiah, right? He would have been raised in the Scriptures. Verse 18, this is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. No big thing. Oh, Jesus is reading from Isaiah. He's telling us about the coming Messiah. All the Jews who heard this would have understood from Isaiah's prophecy 750 years ago, and if you didn't connect the dots, that's the passage I read in Isaiah, that this is speaking of the Messiah. Notice what Jesus said in verse 20, verse 21. And he closed the book, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. If this was a movie, this is where the, this is where the, the music is beginning to crescendo. This is where it's getting big. I mean, the, these are those drums in the background. Right? Everything's coming to a head. Look at what it says in verse 21. Here's the head. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Right, I got chill bumps. This was the moment. Everything had been routine up to this point. Just another reader reading a passage of Scripture about the Messiah who's going to be God, who's going to set us free, that we've all been waiting for and our ancestors for hundreds and hundreds of years until the point to where Jesus sits down after giving the book back to the attendant, and he says, today, right here, this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, mic drop. Right, And everybody would have known, do not let anybody ever tell you on a comp uh, college campus, in your workplace, next to the water cooler, on social media, don't let anybody ever convince you by the statement, oh, Jesus never claimed himself to be God. 
I mean, if you were in this context, if you were there on that spot, it would have been clearly evident. Read the end of the passage on your own and see what they did to him. They all appreciated him at first. By the end, they're running him out of town ready to kill him. They knew exactly what he was saying. They understood clearly that this passage of Scripture by Isaiah the prophet, speaking of the coming Messiah, God who is going to set us free, this man just stood up in front of all of us and said, today this is fulfilled and you're hearing. What he's saying is, I'm that Messiah. I'm him. Part of Jesus' mission then, we can gather from that passage, what was part of his mission? It was to come to preach the gospel. It was come to release the captives. It was to come to give sight to the blind. It was to come to lift up the downtrodden. It was to come to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That was part of his mission. The, the, the goal to do all of that always fuels the mission. But this didn't capture every nuance of what his mission was. Let's Let's add to this. Let's expand it a little bit. Look over in 1 John, 1 John, towards the close of your New Testament, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. John, one of his former disciples, towards the end of his life, is shedding a little bit of light on another nuance of Jesus' mission when he came to this earth. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God, that's Jesus, appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. So it's very clearly, when you see that word purpose, you understand there's somewhat of a mission statement there. The Son of God appeared for this purpose. This was, this was his mission, to destroy the works of the devil. So what are the works of the devil? Well, the whole world up to that point, and still continuing today, bear the marks of the enemy's works. He is the ultimate counterfeit to everything that God desires and to everything that God seeks to do. The enemy has a counterfeit that's available. And anytime you turn on your local news, anytime you scroll through your news feed, including all the events that are unfolding even now as we speak in Israel, all of those things are ultimately reflections of what the enemy does when the enemy has a foothold. And what the Messiah did, what Jesus did, according to John in 1 John, was that he came not just to undo, but to destroy the works of the devil. So that when he brings wreckage to a person's life, Jesus came to destroy that work and to replace wreckage with healing. Jesus came to replace bondage with freedom. He came to replace uh, uh, captivity with rescue. He came to replace death with life. He came to replace guilt with forgiveness and peace. You you, kind of see where this is going here. And so John says, this was part of the mission of Jesus. It was to destroy the works of the devil. Let's add to this. Let's continue to paint this picture of what Jesus' mission was. John chapter 10, verse 10, a verse that many of you are familiar with. Jesus' own lips said this. It's in red. That the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So you look at Jesus' mission. Let's clarify it even a little more. The funnel is getting tighter now. We're tightening it down of what his mission was. He came to preach the gospel. He came to set free. He came to raise up those, those were downtrodden. He came to heal those that were in blindness. He came to destroy the works of the devil. And now here, he also came to counter those works by giving life, and not just life, but abundant life. Not just over there in heaven, but on this earth as well. 
He came to bring a whole new quality of life that could only be described as being so radically different as being born all over again. That was his mission. But even there, there's still kind of a final end destination. What was it? What was that ultimate goal that fueled the whole entire life and ministry of Jesus? I believe we see it in the book of Luke chapter 19, verse 10. One short little verse that Luke includes, again from the lips of Jesus, written in red, where he says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. What was the mission of Jesus? Was it to preach messages? He preached a lot. That wasn't his end goal. Was it to do miracles? He did a bunch of them, really good ones. If you'd have been there, you'd have been dazzled. You would have posted it in a heartbeat, on the spot, in real time. But that wasn't his mission was it to begin a movement? The world already had a ton of movements. It wasn't just about beginning a movement, though one formulated as a result of it that still extends to this day. Believers now are a part of it. But he didn't come just to start another mission, just another movement. He came to seek and to save those who were lost so that he could replace what the enemy had counterfeited with salvation and life as only God could give it. That was the mission. And everything that he did, a principle that plays into this, virtually everything that Jesus did was with that mission in mind. That he's come to seek and to save those who are lost. Those who don't have a relationship with the God who created him. His whole entire life and ministry was fueled by that mission. Remember, It's the end goal that fuels the mission. That's what fueled Jesus. Every conversation he had was with the mission in mind. When he's having a conversation in John chapter 3 with one of the most religious people in the whole entire area, Nicodemus, he's having a conversation with Nicodemus, this man who knew religion up one side and down the other. He's having a conversation with him, and the whole conversation was fueled with the end goal in mind that religion wasn't going to save Nicodemus. It still doesn't save anybody today. He needed a relationship with the Messiah. And it's in that passage in John chapter 3, in the context of that conversation with Nicodemus, that he reveals the most famous verse of all. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It's in the context of that conversation with Nicodemus. His, all of his conversations were with the end goal, with, with the mission in mind, when he had conversation with uh, the woman at the well in John chapter 4, when he had conversation with a woman caught in adultery who had just thrown down in front of him at her worst possible moment of sin, that conversation as well he had with her with the end goal in mind that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Every conversation he had was with the end mission in mind. His works were with the end goal, the mission in mind to seek and to save That which was lost. His miracles, when he turned water into wine, he proved himself to be Lord over creation. Nobody else could do that. He proved himself to be unlike anybody else that anyone had ever witnessed or heard of, that he was Lord over creation. Why would he prove that? Why could he prove that by turning water into wine? It's not about, oh, Jesus turned, you know, made wine. It's not about that. It's about him proving himself to be Lord over those things. He is creator. Colossians chapter 1, John chapter 1, I mean, uh, Genesis chapter 1. 
He proved it as work to, to, to do those miracles and, and the healing blind Bartimaeus and, and walking over the surface of the water. I mean, he proved himself to be God in those things. They were always done not to dazzle the crowds, but to prove himself that he alone could seek and save that which is lost. It's because he was God. When you think about ultimately the, 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 um, the teaching that he, that he made, when he taught about righteousness, when he taught about obedience, when, when he looked at his death and his burial and his resurrection, everything he did was with a purpose. Everything. And when he met that woman at the well, by the way, in John chapter 4, it says in the wording of it that he had to go through Samaria. And many believe, and I believe, this is somewhat speculation, but I think the reason he had to go through Samaria was because there was a woman there who needed salvation, and she would be the first missionary to that region. It was all with a purpose. That was his mission. It drove everything. He came to seek and to save that which was lost to the point to where when you get towards the end of his earthly ministry, John chapter 17, when we get towards the end of it, here he is in John 17 praying what's called the high priestly prayer. This is just moments before his arrest. He would be arrested falsely uh, with trumped-up charges. He would have six trials, three Roman, three Jewish, most if not all of them illegal in nature. He would eventually be crucified, honed across to die publicly in humiliation, even though he was sinless. And it all, like right before all of this would go into motion, John 17, he's praying to the Father. And here's what he says, verse 1. Jesus spoke these things. And lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come, has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And even as you have authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Listen to what he says in verse 4 as he prays to the Father. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Just before the events of the cross, he prays to the Father, Everything you gave me to do, the mission for which I came has been accomplished. Mission accomplished. And it was from the cross just before he died. He says those three words, it is finished. Greek word tetelestai, it was a financial accounting term that meant paid in full. And from the cross, not only did he pray to the Father, I've done everything that you've called me to do, that you've sent me to do, mission accomplished. But from the cross, he says, uh, ultimately, it is finished, right? His work is complete. And again, it wasn't about the miracles, and it wasn't about the crowds, and it wasn't about all of the teaching. As beneficial as all those things were, when you look at his mission, the purpose for which he came was to seek and to save the lost. And listen, you were a part of that, and I was a part of that. And we understand that it, just, just in, in simple fashion what his mission was. When he, when he was talking, when he read that passage that we just read in the book of Luke that was tracing all the way back to Isaiah, and he talked about setting the captives free. Have you forgotten? You were one of those, right? I was one of those. And when he talked about opening the eyes of the blind, don't forget, because you've been a Christian for all these years, that you were as blind as they, as they come, right? And you needed someone to come in from the outside to restore sight, spiritual sight, the ability to see the God who had created you. That's why he came. He came for you. That Those who were downtrodden, those who had been counterfeited by the devil, those who had been sold a bill of goods, those who had chosen 
sin in life. He came to pay the price, to be the substitute, to be the sacrifice, to ultimately raise us up and, and, and to restore us to a relationship with the Father that, that was restored, that was healthy, that was right, that was at peace. And he did all that, not just to give us life somewhere in the distant future in a place called heaven, but to give it to us right here. And all the work that the enemy has done in lives of people like you and me, he came to destroy those works and to replace them with life. As I said earlier, in such radical fashion, it can only be described as being born all over again. That's what he came to do. That was his mission. You. (laughs) You were his mission. And when we look at this, man, I'm just... What came to mind as I was putting this together was Revelation Chapter 3, people like us who've, who've come and seen, who've tasted that the Lord is good, who've given our lives to Jesus, this is a real danger in the church today, is Revelation 3, the church in Laodicea. This is what Jesus would say at the close of the New Testament to a real church in a city called Laodicea. Revelation 3, verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I'm rich and I have become wealthy and I have need of nothing. And you don't even know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself so that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. One of the tragedies and one of the dangers in the church today filled with Christians just like us is that we begin somehow thinking that it's all about us and that we've got what it takes and that we didn't need as much of a payment as was required through Jesus on the cross. Yeah, Easter is a great holiday. Yeah, Christmas is a great holiday. But, you know, come on, I'm a pretty good person. I don't know that it was all about that necessarily. What we can't afford to go down is a path that thinks we're better than we were right it took the sacrifice of the pure spotless without blemish son of god himself to leave heaven to come to this place to pay an awful cruel payment for us to be made right with god do not lose sight of that this is what fuels the worship of christians like us And I'm telling you, man, when we lose sight, this is what it costs for us to be made right with God. And when we lose sight of the simple fact, when we begin to lose sight that that, that it's him who restored our sight, that that, that it's him who set us free, that it's him who's given us victory over sin, that it's him who's given us abundant life and peace and joy and hope and help and ministry and all those things that he gives. When we begin to lose sight of that, we become closer and closer and closer to the lukewarm church that makes God sick. He says, I'll spit you out of my mouth. His whole entire mission. The reason that he left heaven to come to a place where he would be treated as he was was because the end goal fueled the mission of his life and ministry. And that end goal was to seek and to save you, period. So what are we going to do about it? hopefully worship, and hopefully share the good news. Principle three, and we're done. 
that even though Jesus' earthly mission is complete, he said it was. Father, I've done everything you sent me to do. It is finished. Even though his mission is complete, God's mission to reach the world with the gospel is not. And his plan A is for people like us to share the news with people in this world that are still in bondage, that are still held captive, that still don't have eternal life, that still don't know the beauty of what it means to be in relationship with God, that still are in need of spiritual healing. It's to share the simple message of the gospel through the lives we live and through the words we share so that they can know him the way we do. You know what? In his mission, in his life, in ministry, he made it all about you. The worst thing we can do from this point on is to make it all about us. We worship him for what he did, who he is, and we share him because for so many, eternity is at stake. Let's pray. You know, I wonder today, maybe for some who've never given their lives to Jesus, you're here, you're kind of checking things out. Maybe you've been in church a long time, but you've never come to that place where you've owned your sin and admitted it and asked Jesus to forgive and to save you. I wonder if perhaps seeing what his whole mission was about, that it was about people just like you and you included, if that's not evidence enough for you to make the biggest decision you'll ever make, and that's to lay down your sin and to invite him to forgive you and to take over. You know, right where you sit today, you can do that. You can make the decision that so many of us have made. And that's a decision to just ask Jesus to forgive you and to save you and to rescue you, to give you new life, and he'll do it. Right where you sit, he'll give you eternal life and abundant life today. Lord, we thank you for the offer that you put on the table today. It's the offer to the Christian that when we come to place our faith in you, the work is not done, Lord. You've saved us, and our eternity is secure, but there's still a mission, your mission, that we're called to, to live in a way and to share in a way that helps others to know you the way we do. And even for those today that have never given their lives to Jesus, it's the most amazing invitation that's ever existed. It's an invitation for someone to give up what's already caused so much hurt, that being their sin, and to accept you, the God who made them, to be Lord and Savior, Jesus. We thank you for the offer. We thank you for the change that comes. We thank you for those over these 2,000 years that dot the landscape of this world who live lives that are surrendered to you and who make a difference. God, help us to be those people as well. And may this be a church that's known for living in a way that loves our neighbor and that does what we need to, to help all to know that there's a God who still heals and delivers and saves. Thank you for grace, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name we pray.